0: Did you
2: just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash?
0: Maybe. Shh. Services are provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Terms apply. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit tomboyx.com.
2: The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So, why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig with details.
3: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
4: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're going to talk about the gender of genius because it's a masculine gendered noun in a lot of ways. Let's just go ahead and put that out there.
1: Yeah, that's going to be the whole point of the show
4: and the thing that we're going to work to dismantle. Yeah, and there have actually been a lot of scientific studies in the past few years and even in the past few weeks when we're recording this that have been really digging into our implicit associations with genius and innovation. And uh, research is finding that there are really strong correlations between our gendering of genius and participation of women in STEM fields in science, technology, engineering, and math. Right. Because if something is an implicit bias, if you yourself,
1: no matter if you're a man or a woman, have internalized that bias and those assumptions, it will likely shape your behavior. And in this case, what it's shaping is the assumptions that some people are making about who can be a genius? Who can a- attain that level?
4: Well, because if you look back in pretty much all of recorded history, going back to Aristotle, the concept of genius and brilliance was something attributed to men. That was their mm-hmm. natural trait, whereas it's natural, in quotes, for women to be more nurturing. And we see this theme come up over and over again. Uh, and one quote from the old school philosopher John Stuart Mill came up in a number of sources we were reading that kind of uh, gets to the heart of this whole, it's it's simply unnatural for a woman to be a genius. So at one point, Mill wrote, everything which is usual appears natural, the subjection of of women to men being a universal custom, any departure from it quite naturally appears unnatural. So there's just this initial resistance to even the idea of women being genius, because if they're, if women can be geniuses, then that means that they might not be so subordinate to men. Right, or that men might have something in common with
1: women. Oh, oh.
4: Women might come into the room and talk to you. Uh-oh. Uh, but <laughs> let's start things off on a bright note. No, I lo- I love that. Yeah. It's uh, and- unusual for us. <laughs> well, you know what? Let's change things up, shall we? And this is courtesy of the MacArthur Foundation, which is known for its so-called genius grants that it gives out every year. And I got to say... All the snaps and claps to the MacArthur Foundation Mm -hmm. because they have a track record of selecting comparatively diverse groups of so-called geniuses. Yeah,
1: September of this year, 2016, marked the foundation's 35th anniversary of giving this five-year, no-strings-attached genius grant to people who are chosen for their creativity and their ongoing potential to, you know, continue to create amazing stuff and make amazing changes in this world.
4: And podcast fans might know that Jad Abumrad, who created and co-hosts uh, Radio Lab, was given a MacArthur Grant at one point, um, which is part of why Radio Lab is such a sonic delight for our ears, <laughs> um, because of his creativity, but also these resources that he was given to help develop that. But a lot of these other people uh, are not (laughs) white fellas like Jad Abumrad, uh, even though, of course, Jad Abumrad is fantastic. Nothing against Jad Abumrad. Just saying that, there's some sminty all-stars among these geniuses. That's absolutely right. Uh, ai Jinpu Poo
1: in 2014 was awarded a Genius Grant. She's the director, of course, for the National Domestic Workers Alliance. We talked to her during the Makers Conference of this year. Also in 2014, graphic novelist Alison Bechdel. And in 2005, conductor Maren Alsop. I mean, these are all incredible women that we've discussed on the podcast before. Yeah, Bechdel,
4: us. Uh, coined the so-called Bechdel test in her former comic strip called uh, Dykes to Watch Out for. And the whole Bechdel test is uh, essentially a test of like whether there's any shred of decent female representation on screen, which uh, must Include two women talking to each other who both have names and they are not talking about a dude. And you'd be surprised how few movies (laughs) pass the Bechdel test. And then Marin Alsup came up a lot in our episode a while back on women and conducting and orchestras because uh, orchestra conductors are a very male-dominated group. Well, and
1: that whole episode, which I encourage you to go back and listen to, uh, would be a great companion piece to today's episode because there's a lot of conversation in that previous episode about what makes a genius, a creative genius, what makes a prodigy, what makes someone in the field of music
4: and in conducting in, in particular Successful. And when it comes to PhDs in music composition, you see a very wide gender gap with most of those um, being earned by dudes. But we'll get to that later in the show. Um This year... In 2016, we also wanted to shout out a trio of amazing women of color who have been recognized uh, as MacArthur geniuses as well, starting with Kelly Jones, who's an art historian and curator of contemporary art uh, from the African diaspora. And her whole mission is to really expand and diversify our definition of what contemporary art is is and in her video on the MacArthur Foundation's website she says there are art histories that are global and art history isn't just written in Europe.
1: Yeah, she wanted her colleagues in art history to acknowledge that fact. And we also have to acknowledge poet Claudia Rankin because a lot of her work has explored very sminty relevant important themes. Um, in Plot, she explored pregnancy and motherhood. Uh, in Don't Let Me Be Lonely, she looked at the fear culture in the wake of 9-11. And Citizen was a response to Katrina, police shootings of unarmed black men and other events of injustice.
4: And Joyce e. Scott was the MacArthur genius that captivated me the most. I had never heard of her before and am really excited to investigate more of her work because she's a sculptor, jewelry maker, and she also refers to herself as a visual and performing artist. But her primary medium is beadwork. And she crafts these massive... Installations that are, like, primarily composed of this really intricate beadwork, all of which tells a story. And in particular, her work tends to comment on racism, sexism, and social injustice. And she told the MacArthur Foundation that my best voice is as an artist, and I highly recommend you look up Joyce C. Scott's work because you just have to see the level of detail and the powerful images and sculpture she creates with what had previously been maligned as just, oh, it's just a little handicraft. Yes. Well, is that not a theme
1: of the discussion of genius for centuries? 100%. And I mean, you know, it's important to note, too, though, that we've been calling these things MacArthur Genius Grants. But even the MacArthur Foundation is like, oh, we don't really call them that, guys. Uh, they, They say that we avoid using the term genius to describe MacArthur Fellows because it connotes a singular characteristic of intellectual prowess. The people we seek to support express many other important qualities, ability to transcend traditional boundaries, willingness to take risks, persistence in the face of personal and conceptual obstacles, and capacity to synthesize disparate ideas and approaches. And I mean... Are those are traits
4: that help people achieve so-called genius status, no matter who you are. Right. But I think a lot of times we think of genius as that instant light bulb mm-hmm. moment, as someone who is a goodwill hunting, mm-hmm. who can walk up to the chalkboard and be like, Oh, yes, yeah, So uh, I just, I, I know all of these things. <laughs> I'm, I'm intuitively. waiting for that. Yeah. I'm waiting for that to happen for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, not to say there aren't people who have that potential. Um, but they're, it's worth considering whether we do need to maybe reframe how we think about genius and also um, and place more uh, emphasis on the time and failure that it often takes to, uh, to accomplish these things that geniuses are often known for. And here's the thing. Those MacArthur Fellows are the brightest spot in this conversation, because historically, women just could not be creative geniuses. And we got to give a hat tip to Christine Battersby's 1989 Gender and Genius Toward a Feminist Aesthetics. Uh, She really wrote this groundbreaking text that is still often referenced when we talk about gender and genius. And she talks about how genius, along with rationality and intellect, have been masculine gendered traits since antiquity. Because guys have all of those, those tools, whereas women are sensitive and emotional. Those are our natural traits.
1: Yeah. Basically the idea that women are focused inward. Literally inward within themselves because they're, you know, they've got women's intuition and they're emotional and they're quiet and they're tending to the home. But also looking inward like as in in the home because they are in a separate sphere away from men and the fancy rooms where genius activity apparently happens. And it's funny when you look at quotes about women's supposed lack of genius because it just sounds like the Internet in 2016. (laughs) Oh, it so does. It really <laughs>
4: sounds like Twitter. Just the, those dudes on Twitter. Um, just to emphasize how, uh, disbelieving. Genius men have been that it could possibly be something that could happen to a lady brain, that our lady brains could have light bulb moments as well. Uh, We wanted to share some quotes that were uh, discussed in the book The Invention of Art, A Cultural History by Larry Shiner. So let's start with an anonymous dude who was writing in a magazine called The Spectator back in 1712. He writes, and this made me think of Joyce C. Scott and her beadwork. He writes, needlework is the most proper way wherein a lady can show fine genius. And he goes on to say how he wishes that, quote, several writers of the sex had chosen to apply themselves rather to tapestry than rhyme.
1: Well, yeah, which goes, again, back to the idea that, like needlework and these types of of domestic arts are, are handicrafts handicrafts they're more well suited to a woman which then has the uh, cyclical effect of Uh, Women, you're quiet and emotional and part of the domestic sphere, so you need to do handicrafts. Oh, and therefore, handicrafts are crap
4: because they are done by women, on and on and on and on. And this relates back to our episode on knitting, Mm -hmm. where knitting used to be uh, this really revered trade that men totally participated in until it became like, oh, no, that's what ladies do with your your needlework and tiny prune brains. So much fear. So much fear. Uh, And also just so much what? (laughs) For instance, you have all enlightenment philosopher and rationalist, ironically, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who wrote, women in general possess... No genius. Because the celestial fire that emblazons and ignites the soul, the inspiration that comes and devours, are always lacking. Dude. Dude. Rousseau. Rousse. Jean-Jacques. JJ. JJ. JJ.
1: Listen. Uh, Like, this is a theme in life throughout history of, like, we're going to prevent women from doing a lot of stuff. And then when women don't do a lot of stuff, we're gonna blame them and call them stupid. We're just gonna
4: underestimate you. How, you, you, you cannot possibly have the fire that emblazons. Also, JJ, that also might be an STD. You might want to check that out. Uh, and finally, we have German philosopher, Immanuel Kant, who said, a woman scholar might as well even have a beard. Like, gross, guys. Can you imagine? So it's like, even if we did have that celestial fire that JJ is going on about, Immanuel Kant would be like, ugh, but don't touch that troll. Yeah, what? Well, what? Well, you can't win. You really can't
1: win. There's no winning. And, alright, so if we move up to uh, 1800 to about 1850, genius male artists were allowed the room. To be both the genius with inflamed brain parts or whatever Rousseau was talking <laughs> about, but also to have the sensitivity necessary to create something of great importance. And, and a lot of times it was framed in these, well, it, it was framed in terms of birth. You know, like, oh, men, they are impregnated with this inflamed idea or whatever, and then they have to toil and labor and sweat and then push it out (laughs) as as a painting or
4: a sculpture or a work of... Fiction or something. The intellectual episiotomy. (laughs) So uncomfortable. But this was happening, we should note, during the era of romanticism. So you do have more male artists who are creating these pieces that would normally be more associated with a feminine aesthetic, but that did not devalue them at all. Nay, dear friends, that only increased their values. Because that birth process is unnatural for men. Right. So it was like, these guys have it all. (laughs) Fellas, you can have it all. Romanticism artists, you can have it all. And, uh, (laughs) Uh, Christine Battersby, in that 1989 Gender ingenious book, talks about how um, men's capacity for tapping into the emotional was considered downright extraordinary. So for them, it was a gift. But you got to remember that on the flip side of this, especially if we're talking about art, visual art, Women artists were often barred from academies, uh, they were not allowed to draw, uh, do life drawings from nude models. Thank god they had cows, right? Uh, yeah, we'll get, we'll get to that joke. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> um, uh, spoiler. <laughs> and they were also, if they, if they were wanting to paint, A proper lady would stick to portraiture and flowers, kind of like around the same time if a woman had a mind for science, she would be steered toward botany. Yes, which matched with drawing flowers.
1: Mm -hmm. It's perfect. It's all flowers. I mean, it's all a woman's interests, you know, wrapped up into one painting of a (laughs) flower. Wrapped into one flower. But, okay, no, but I – sticking point with something you said, like, okay, if this whole, like, birth – Metaphor that it's so extraordinary for a man to labor and create that idea, and and because it's unnatural and extraordinary, therefore he is a genius. But they considered it unnatural for women to be geniuses. So if a woman was a genius, wouldn't she be considered extraordinary? But instead, she was considered like an ugly masculine troll. I'm like men, pick a
4: pick a line of logic and stick with it. Right, take that, JJ. What you get? What, how about them apples, Russo? <laughs> Monsieur Kant. I know you're not a Monsieur. You're because you're German. Would that be Her. Herr, Herr Kant? <laughs> I'm gonna stop uh, saying his name and accents because that might come across as the word we're not intending to say. <laughs> <laughs> but as mind-boggling as it is, the masculinizing of genius has been so deeply ingrained in our history, in our art history, and even our science labs up to today, there are some feminists who have argued for really tempering our interests and recognition of lone geniuses in favor of recognizing more collective efforts because there are some um, feminists who find that uh, women's collaborative work, you know, should gain more recognition. But there are also, of course, plenty of other feminists who disagree. And also we have to keep in mind, too, uh, that essentializing a female artistic style as being more contemplative, delicate and detail oriented um, and, you know, praising women's works solely for, those kinds of traits that may or may not be exhibited on canvas also misses the mark.
1: Yeah, which calls back to our women street artists episode about, you know, it's great to recognize that there are female street artists out there creating badass works of art in public. But on the other hand, like there are plenty of women who are like, can you not call me a female street artist? Oh, yeah, totally. I there is nothing different in my art, whether I paint flowers or like <laughs> some sort of, you know, in industrial scene or something. There's nothing that makes it feminine or masculine. It's
4: just art. And this was a really huge issue among academics in particular during the women's liberation movement, because this was when a lot of women's studies programs were getting off the ground. And this was really when you first start to see the opposition to this distinctly masculine gendering of genius. And in researching for this episode, we ran across a 1971 essay in art news by Linda Nochlin titled, why have there been no great women artists? And it's worth talking about because first of all, like positioning it within the time, um, it it still feels relevant today. Oh yeah, I was really surprised after I read it to be like, oh, this is oh, this is from
1: 1971. Yeah. Because it's it's such an interesting piece because she makes the incredible point of uh hey, we're asking the wrong question. Right. There are valid answers to the question as it's put in the title of her piece, but She's asking readers to take several steps back and look at what they're asking and why and why they're
4: positioning it that way. And she starts out by explaining, first of all, <laughs> what the barriers were to women even being able to attempt to become a great artist. So she she um she points to these institutional Issues, a la the lack of nude models for female artists. I mean, life drawing is like the core of a lot of art. Mm-hmm. That's where a lot of times you start out. They were also barred from a lot of artistic professions, um, especially in the French Academy, which was renowned. It was extremely hard to get in there. And uh, Malcolm Gladwell actually has a terrific episode, podcast episode on this in his, uh, show, Revisionist History. The first episode is actually all about this, about this amazing female artist who almost makes it into the academy. Uh, so, I recommend listening to that, and hopefully I will remember and put a link to that in uh, the source post for this episode so you can check it out. And there's also nepotism that was going on at this time. Like, artistic trades were often passed down from father. To son, yeah, exactly, and and apprenticeships. It's not like you had
1: a ton of women floating around in apprenticeships. All of those lengthy programs,
4: usually seven years, those were for dudes yeah. to learn the trade. And getting back to your cow joke, well, there was uh, this amazing photo in Nockland's essay from 1855 of a life drawing class for women. In the Pennsylvania Academy, but instead of having a naked person modeling, which would be unseemly, uh, they had a cow. There's there's like (laughs) – and and it's just this (laughs) – it almost looks Photoshopped because there's this giant cow with all of these very (laughs) properly dressed women (laughs) sketching it. Have you ever hung out with a cow? You know, I – Yeah, actually, uh, one of my sisters owns a number of cows, and I I don't know if it constitutes hanging out with, Mm -hmm. but uh, I've hung around the cows. They're pretty cool.
1: I like a cow. I there was one outside of a uh, of Earth Fair here in Atlanta not too long ago. It was like a promotional thing for a dairy something something. I oh, don't, know. don't don't put a cow in
4: a parking lot. Also,
1: don't put a cow in a an
4: art academy. <laughs> it's like why didn't they take the women outside to a field? Well, what if that so was their, What if
1: that was their mascot? Oh,
4: the Pennsylvania cows. <laughs> uh, cow academy? Mm. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, if though. Uh An artistic lady had the rare chance of drawing a male model he w- he would likely be very heavily draped, yeah in a lot of and a lot of things, so as to not even suggest uh, be like a an outline of his penis.
1: Joey in that episode of Friends where he's wearing all of Chandler's clothes.
4: you know i don't I don't get that one, <laughs> but I'm sure it exists. Someone knows what I'm talking about. Uh, But what really stopped me too, Caroline, and I'm really curious to hear what you thought about it, was some real talk Mm -hmm. that Nocklin dropped where she was basically saying, listen, it's terrific for us to highlight these women artists who have remained unrecognized but who were making incredible work. Um, But that is not the answer to this question we are going about this the wrong way she said quote the fact of the matter is that there have been no supremely great women artists as far as we know although there have been many interesting and very good ones who remain insufficiently investigated or appreciated she she basically says as much as we want them to be there That's not the case. And she goes on to write, quote, That this should be the case is regrettable, but no amount of manipulating the historical or critical evidence will alter the situation, nor will accusations of male chauvinist distortion of history.
1: Well, I mean, what's her argument in terms of supremely great women artists? Is she just saying, like, we don't have female
4: Michelangelo's? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah. And— I think like she's saying this to focus us on the institutional barriers. Right. Well, rather like, than finding exceptions to the rule. Yeah.
1: Like if you're imagining people who want to be in the arts starting out on platforms, a Michelangelo is starting out on the ground level. I mean, obviously he was brilliant, but starting out on the ground level and working up and achieving greatness and creating brilliant art. Whereas women who might have had the same artistic proclivities, same desires are starting out on a platform in the basement and they never quite make it up if there was anyone even
4: teaching them how to do this stuff. Yeah, I mean, and there, and there were definite exceptions here and there, um, but by no means uh, to the same degree as the opportunities that men were afforded. And even if you were a super talented and super ambitious woman who had a lot of great ideas and a lot to say with your work, or even if you were uh, really ambitious in academia, then you were considered unladylike. You know, then we get back to Herr Kant's woman with a beard, a woman, a scholar might as well have a beard. Um, and it wasn't just this idea that oh, she's ugly, but the belief that exerting your brain power too much would ruin your uterus. Yeah.
1: And if we look at the example of Rosa Bonheur, who she died in 1899, she's one of art history's most accomplished female painters. And it's worth noting what her life was like to look at kind of what it took for a woman to rise through the ranks, basically. And she not only had an encouraging artistic father, but she also was in a Boston marriage with fellow artist Natalie Micus, which, I mean, she didn't have children. She didn't have a husband that she had to do everything for. You know, she didn't have to fit into that tight box of being the typical housewife of the era, which just goes to show how important it is to have the time and mental space to be able to create. I mean... This reminds me, reading about her encouraging father, it just reminds me of people like uh, astronomer Caroline Herschel, who also had an encouraging father. He taught all of his children, uh, male or female, how to play musical instruments. And she was encouraged by his
4: pushing her and her brothers to be educated. Well, in Rose Bonheur's... Biography also reminds me first of our episode on Boston marriages with the resounding theme of it taking not getting married, not becoming a housewife and not having kids for uh, the earliest generation of white women, we should note, um, going off to college and really making a life for themselves on their own independently and also, um, devoting their lives to activism and suffrage a lot of times, like a Jane Addams. Um, but then if we look at more of the artistic side, it reminds me of our episode on the white Marmorian flock about women's sculptors of the time and how, first of all, they had to leave the United States mm-hmm. because they would just get, you know, brushed aside a stateside and so they would go over to Europe and it required Patronage. So, for someone like Edmonia Lewis, who was a woman of color at the time and also a sculptor over in Europe, um, it took a lot of support, even more support, for her to achieve the uh, the greatness that she did. And even so, we don't know really
1: when or where she died or how she lived the rest of her life even stories about her early life are sort of legend you know we know that she went to school she went to college she left there was you know she she received a lot of discrimination and abuse because of her race and that she went over and was part of this white marmorian flock in rome with harriet hosmer at all um but even so even getting all of the attention for her amazing abilities like we still don't know
4: much about her life. Well, and that goes to the glaring oversight in everything that we read, honestly, of how all of this applies to both historically and uh, in contemporary times to women of color and people of color in general. Because I think that especially when we're talking about uh, the art conversation, um, it would apply to men and women of color. Alike, and uh, with the exception, though, of something like jazz. And this was uh, written about by Nicole T. Rustin in a paper called Mary Lou Williams Plays Like a Man Gender, Genius, and Difference in Black Music Discourse. And she describes how uh, jazz musicians' genius, musical genius, was interpreted as an expression of masculinity. And Rustin writes, quote, myths about black musicians' genius include likening them to superheroes, preachers, revolutionaries, and powerful voices speaking to the need for truth and equality. They're black men embodying ideas of manhood. That is, they're self-determining and masculinity, such as their capacity for expressing emotional or metaphysical states like being cool or spiritual or defiant. So you have a similar kind of gender dynamic going on uh, within jazz and, of course, the double discrimination then that women of color experienced in that community, even though you did have standouts like Mary Lou Williams. And we are going to discuss more factors in holding women back from that
1: genius label when we come right back from a quick break.
3: This episode is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is
2: where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to two four two four two four to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit-tested for all-day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com.
4: So our conversation about gender and genius is especially timely, Caroline, because the day before we came into the podcast studio to record this episode, a new study dropped looking at exactly... This thing we've been talking about, um, and it echoes a lot of other research that we are going to get into in the second half of the podcast, and this most recent study uh, came from Kristen Elmore at Cornell and Myra Luna Lucero at Columbia University, and Essentially, what they found was how our metaphors of how we talk about genius, those light bulb moments, those sparks of inspiration, that instantaneous uh, quality. The inflamed parts that Rousseau talked about. Yes, Rousseau's <laughs> brain on fire. Um, those are also masculine gendered implicitly, whereas when we think about women innovators, we often associate them more with nurturing a seedling.
1: Yes, their study was really interesting. So they gave people some paragraphs to read uh, talking about uh, a male inventor, and they described in the different paragraphs they used the the spark of inspiration type of light bulb metaphor for his invention. In uh, the second, they said that it was more of a Seed that had been planted and nurtured with hard work and time. And in the third paragraph, there was no metaphor at all. <laughs> and they found that his, the inventor's status as a genius was doubted or downplayed or not thought of quite as highly when it was described as a seedling that had grown over time. That it really took the more masculine view of the light bulb genius moment For people to feel like, yes, yes,
4: this is a true genius. Unless the subject in question was a woman, Mm -hmm. in which case we were totally fine with it being more of a nurturing, seedling approach to it. So these study authors suggested that perhaps there is even more pressure that men might subconsciously feel Mm -hmm. to... Um, recount their discoveries as those light bulb moments.
1: Well, pressure to recount their experience is that, but also taking into account the idea that if you, male or female, feel like you lack that, you know, internal fire, that light bulb, that spark, well, maybe I'm not a genius. Maybe this isn't For me, maybe it's not my true passion or I'm not good enough at it if I don't have this spark or this light bulb that everybody talks about. This is what genius is supposed to be, right? And to me, that just makes it seem like the idea of genius is tenuous at best. If our concept is so easily rocked by whether your accomplishments were a seedling that you grew over time or a light bulb that came on one morning.
4: Well, and this is where the FAB hypothesis comes in because basically what you're describing is this thing called field-specific ability beliefs. And it reminds me a lot of stereotype threat Mm -hmm. um, because it has a similar outcome. And it's a relatively new area of research, but so far the studies totally support it. So what the FAB hypothesis maintains is that the more academic fields emphasize goodwill hunting style genius for success, the quote-unquote raw intellectual talent, the less diverse they are. And institutionally, this can also lead to pipeline problems because potential candidates might be overlooked due to cultural assumptions of their un. Genius-ness. Even though statistically, FYI, American women surpassed men in earning doctorate degrees in 2002. But men are still considered the academic geniuses.
1: And, you know, I, I think that uh, I, I hate that the idea of the raw intellectual talent thing could be holding people back because so much of it goes to. Do you have the space and time? Like we said earlier, do you have parents who will foster your creativity, your talents, your abilities, your inventiveness? Do you have, you know, a great education? Did you pursue a great education? Were you curious? And I mean, one great modern example of that would be the brilliant Brittany X line. In 2007, she became the youngest African-American woman accepted to an Ivy League school at University of Pennsylvania at just 15 years old. And she graduated at 19 to become America's youngest African-American engineer. The woman speaks seven languages. OK, uh, and she did have a mom who not only encouraged her innate abilities, And, you know, wouldn't let her daughter quit, like, piano lessons or whatever if she was like, I don't know, this is too hard. But her mom was also deeply involved at her school. And this was true for both Brittany and Brittany's brother. And so, ah, there we have what we mentioned earlier about, like, uh you know, trades, whether it's painting or sculpture or woodworking or whatever, getting passed down from father to son. Here we have an encouraging parent Clearing room for her daughter to achieve and become that genius.
4: Which, obviously, your ability to do that is going to depend on a lot of circumstances as well. It's it's easier for some parents to be able to do that, to have the resources to do that versus others. But here's the thing. When we talk about pipeline issues, especially from the classroom, the science classroom, all the way up to professorships, Being really, really, really smart and making really, really, really good grades and writing amazing papers as a woman sometimes is not good enough. There was a study published in October 2016 in the journal Nature Geoscience, which found that women are half as likely to receive excellent letters of recommendation versus men, regardless of who's writing the letter. So it's not just, uh, you know, men being Jean-Jacques Rousseau's to women. um, But it seems to be this implicit bias at work. And the study authors think that this might help explain why the proportion of women in geoscience drops from 40% in PhD classrooms to 10% in professorships. And that also controls for the quote-unquote work-life balance issues um, that we hear about in terms of women having a really hard time um, gaining tenure in STEM professions, uh, being STEM uh, field professors. And this study replicated results of research also examining letters of recommendation when it comes to people in biochemistry and chemistry. Men are likelier to be described as trailblazers, brilliant and scientific leaders, whereas, and this rings so true to me, Whereas women are described as being very productive, very knowledgeable, and possessing very good skill sets. We have more grindstone words associated with us. But you know what? We gotta be really good with time management and productivity, cause we probably have a lot of stuff to do at home, like childcare and housework. But to me, this really
1: highlights how easy it is for so many people to say, there's no problem.
4: There's no sexism at work. Um What's wrong with saying someone has a very good skill set? Is that not good enough for you? You're just finding well, things to complain about. And I mean, I'm
1: specifically referring to whether it's men or women writing the letters of recommendation, that women tend to get described as excellent less. uh Because if you can't see it, if you can't see that you or your colleague has that bias, and you don't think you do, you're just simply using different words to describe the woman than the man, like... It can be hard if unless you're thinking very critically and having some real talk with yourself
4: to identify and root out that sexism. Which is why these conversations about unconscious and implicit biases are so important for us really pushing for legit gender equality and representation. Um, and it's also helpful for. Us, whether we are people writing the letters of recommendation or if we're people just sitting in the classroom looking at our teacher or our professor to keep in mind how we interpret their intelligence and to dig a little bit deeper into the fab hypothesis for a moment. Um, these field specific ability beliefs that we might take with us, um, they can affect us internally, like outside of any letters of recommendation or anything like that. And this goes to a study published in 2015 in the journal Science, which surveyed grad students, postdocs, and faculty at nine U.S. research institutions to rate the importance of both having an innate gift or talent uh, or a special aptitude that, quote, just can't be taught versus motivation and sustained effort to succeed in their field. So basically asking like uh, a geoscientist, for instance, like, do you need to be a genius or can you get away with like working really hard? Um, and even after accounting for gender differences in women's academic preferences and family balancing acts, more men than women obtain PhDs in those brilliance fields like philosophy, music theory and composition, going back to Marin Alsop, and physics. And women respondents tended to also emphasize the importance of hard work over genius compared to men who emphasize more genius over hard work. Um, Whereas if you look at fields like neuroscience and molecular biology that have much closer gender parity, you see the responses more emphasizing hard work Versus genius. From both? From women respondents ah. emphasizing, and they emphasize it more in those um. fields versus uh, the men. But that's clear that we we're walking into those fields believing that hard work can earn you success.
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of internalizing about innate abilities about something being within your grasp, about uh, imposter syndrome, uh, what makes a true genius. And you better
4: believe that those uh, study results also held for African-Americans. So this is not just an issue of gender, because rarely is anything solely an issue <laughs> of gender, but um, but we also have to keep in mind, too, that we have a responsibility to mind our own unconscious biases, not only if we are writing letters of recommendations, but also if we're sitting in the classroom, if we are judging someone else's intellect in front of us. Um, and this was emphasized by a March 2016 study published in PLOS One, which analyzed student reviews on RateMyProfessor.com. And the study got so much press Because it found that brilliant was used to describe male professors compared to female professors by a 1.8 to 1 ratio. And genius, a 3.1 to 1 ratio. Whereas there was little difference, gender difference, in descriptors like amazing or excellent, funnily enough. But genius, oh my God, 3 to 1. (laughs) Well, the use of that genius
1: language was also correlated with lower participation by women and African-Americans in Ph.D. programs, even after controlling for workload, GRE
4: scores and a field's emphasis on abstract thinking. And there is also a question of whether these results were kind of weighted because uh, in those brilliance fields, you're going to have more dudes in the classroom and Fellas tend to emphasize genius over hard work, so that might skew the results somewhat. You know, I hated philosophy
1: uh, when I was in college, but I actually loved my philosophy professor. I've mentioned him on the podcast before. His name was Dr. Bueno. (laughs) (laughs) Not kidding. And, yeah, he was a dude and my TA was a dude. But, like, it was such a friend. I really I'm not joking. It was like such a friendly atmosphere The teacher was so great. And it's not his fault that I hate philosophy and that I was like, no, the the chair is there. I'm not going to write a paper asking whether the chair is truly there. It's there. It's next to my desk. I can see it and touch it. Stop with this philosophy stuff. Um, so yeah, I, (laughs) if I had had a uh, natural, both proclivity and tolerance for philosophy, um, you know, I think having a, a friendly, Classroom atmosphere would definitely have been beneficial. (laughs) And like everything on Stuff Mom Never Told You, everything eventually circles around to the mirror that is pop culture and how men and women and genius and like mad scientists are depicted in media and what that tells us about
4: how gendered we consider genius to be. Oh, absolutely. Uh, right now, I am looking at a list on livescience.com, mad geniuses, 10 odd tales about famous science, scientists. And I wanted to mention it because the mad genius trope in particular is almost exclusively men. And this list, for instance, <laughs> Is all men? You've got Einstein, you've got Tesla., uh, you have just not not a single, not a single woman. Um, and in pop culture, the characters of like a monk or house, you know, you usually have these kind of cantankerous, eccentric, genius men. Doc Brown from Back to the Future. Oh, well, then on X-Files, you have Mulder, who's like totally out there, whereas Scully is more. She's the no woman. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's often a pairing you see where you have, you know, the mad genius man and the rational woman. Yeah. To balance him. Gene Wilder's Dr. Frankenstein. Rip. You know,
1: Gene Wilder. and
4: you know what i think i think that's where we start frankenstein <laughs> i mean hello can <laughs> we can we get a lady frankenstein already i would frankly love to see that frankenstein <laughs> i'd frankly love to see that yeah there was a uh, a lovely matrix that we found over at dorkley of all of the both animated and live action mad geniuses in pop culture and there are but three women on here, including Princess Bubblegum from Adventure Time.
1: Yeah, I think my favorite on this diagram is Professor Farnsworth from Futurama.
4: Oh, absolutely. Any, any character from Futurama is my favorite character. Well, and I hadn't thought about that either until, you know, um, Having to sit and think about it for this episode, but it makes sense. Well, because here's the thing: you have a male mad scientist, and
1: he's still a genius. But if you have a female mad scientist, she's nuts. She's probably dangerous. Is she a witch? She's probably a witch.
4: <laughs> she's a Frankenstein.
1: <laughs> yeah, Frankenstein. Uh,
4: yes. Uh, and I'm so curious to know from listeners because you all are so pop culture savvy. What exceptions there are in pop culture, whether you think that there is a better representation happening of women geniuses on screen, or if we are kind of still stuck in this trope because pop culture absolutely matters because visibility matters and it all goes into and feeds this same unconscious bias that a genius is a man. I mean, it's taken us up until quite recently, to figure out that a scientist is not always a man. So I think that this is, um, A, just a really interesting thought exercise mm-hmm. on the construct of genius, mm-hmm. and B, uh, a worthwhile discussion of our gendering of intellect Yes, and how, ugh, it's so outdated. Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Get out of here. No, thanks. <laughs> Bongiorno. <laughs> I think that's Italian. <laughs> you know what I mean. We're talking about genius, right? Au revoir. <laughs> well, listeners, save us. <laughs> Throw us a lifeline with your letters. And I know that there are a lot of folks in academia and research who listen to us. Ooh, we're so curious to hear from you about whether... You feel this in the atmosphere of your institutions that you're working in as well, if it's something that you have noticed or experienced yourself. Let us know all of your genius thoughts and ideas. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send them. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Snagajob.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop.
3: L-A-S-I-K. LASIK.com.
2: Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like... How much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start.
3: L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com.
1: All right, I have one here from Susie in response to our pantsuit episode, and she uses her pantsuit power dressing type of stuff for a different reason than some of us. Uh, she said your pantsuit episode was one of my very favorites. I work in a forest preserve, so suits, blazers, and other typical business wear are not a big factor in my work wardrobe. I might bust out a blazer or a nice pair of work slacks on a semi-annual basis. I do own these pieces from previous jobs in academia and nonprofit administration. And I recently discovered a use for these sad, neglected blazers and suits at the back of my closet. Having suffered from a lifelong, nearly paralyzing fear of needles, I have avoided getting shots, IVs, and blood tests at almost any cost. When I have to be anywhere near needles, I start shaking uncontrollably and, most often, tears ensue. However... My doctor is requiring me to have blood tests every other day for the month of October, and I find that wearing a power outfit like a pantsuit or blazer helps me feel much braver in the phlebotomist chair. I'm not sure this is a thing that would work for everyone with a phobia of needles or other similar situations, but for me, dressing like somebody who is in a position of power gives me the feeling that I'm far more powerful than the needles I fear. I'm proud to say that I haven't cried during a single blood draw so far. Thank you for your amazing podcast. I learned so much and love laughing along with both of you. Dude, Susie, I need to try this. I, am I like break out in a cold sweat over my whole body. I have passed out getting needle, uh, stuff, whether it's shots or blood drawn or vaccines or whatever. Uh,
4: so I might, I might break out the blazer for my next trip to the doctor for my physical. Genius idea. Genius. Right there. So I have a letter here from Kristen with a K, who is writing about our episode on women and yogurt. And she writes, let me just start by saying, I love listening to the podcast every week. I never thought I would find yogurt so interesting. Oh my God, Kristen, already (laughs) the best compliment. (laughs) My husband and I started tracking our food lately and yogurt has become one of our favorite low calorie, high protein snacks. The marketing portion of the podcast is hilarious and yet so true. My husband, during a recent grocery trip, picked up a large package of the yogurt. His choice was based purely on the black packaging. <laughs> he says that it seemed like the manly choice, but that brand cost 50% more than mine, and there was no noticeable taste difference. Keep doing what you do. The show is fantastic. Oh my God, Brogurt. Brogurt works. works had no idea. Uh, Thanks so much for sharing that. Um, And PS, I ate yogurt on my way into work. And I think of the podcast now every time I eat yogurt. (laughs) And I kind of love that.
1: (laughs) Um, I would also like to point out that after our yogurt episode, I went out and bought two things of yogurt because I was like, the internet told me that with my lactose intolerance, I don't have to worry about it not true friends but also we got another email from someone who was like Caroline hey if I know you said on the podcast that you're not lactose intolerant you're lactose sensitive but if you're like having um this problem and this problem and this problem uh you're lactose intolerant and I'm like yeah girl I
4: know yet another genius I know all these genius women writing in and fellas thank y'all so much and keep your letters coming mom stuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn even more about the gendering of genius, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit
2: HowStuffWorks.com.